Welcome to the Dwell Church Sermon Archive. Dwell is a family defined by the love of God and committed to giving it away. Here is this week's message. Good morning, guys. Thank you guys for being here. I'm assuming that you're out there. We're still in the giant cavernous theater today. And so, uh, yeah, I think that you're there, but we'll find out later on by how heavy you laugh at my jokes mostly. Or who knows, you know, maybe shouts of other kinds would be nice. Some sort of feedback would be good to know that you're out there. Uh, yeah, we could do that. Uh, today, I uh, don't have some sort of cute, quirky intro. I have too, too much to say. Far, 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 far too much. So if you guys want to go to lunch, you're going to have to. <laughs> Thank you. There's the feedback. I heard it. If you guys want to go to lunch, then uh, we're going to have to jump right into this. It's interesting. In today's text, Paul starts off by saying, live a life worthy or live a manner of life, sorry, I'll just read it instead of trying to paraphrase, 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, which I feel like is kind of like a tall order to start off our text today. So remember, Paul is writing to the church at Philippi, and he's writing to Christians, believers there, and he says, hey, remember to let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And then everything else that follows in the rest of our section today um, is uh, basically built off of this simple idea. Now, remember, uh, the, the, the numbers that you see in your, in your Bible, the verse numbers and then chapter numbers, are a little bit arbitrary. They're put in there afterwards. Most scholars agree that this part of uh, Paul's text and sort of as he's building out these arguments is actually one section, even though it spans from one chapter to the next chapter. But he opens up this entire section reminding people to let their manner of life be worthy of the gospel. And I'm, I'm a little bit, like, uh, loath to do this and a little bit worried, but I'm, I'm going to, like, you know, pull the, like, nerdy pastor card and be like, well, to understand this, you really have to, like, know Greek and stuff like that. And the reason why I'm loath to do that is because it makes it feel like, oh, well, if you want to really understand the Bible, then you've got to go to seminary for 10 years and you've got to study Greek and you probably had to live in the first century. And none of that is actually true, right? A good Bible or a good study Bible, uh, the Holy Spirit, a community of people to ask questions and to learn around is actually completely sufficient enough. But there's something here that I think we miss. And it's really like this huge sort of heavy weighted kind of passage. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. That's like, that's a heavy and big deal. And so I think I want to make sure that I actually live up to that standard, right? Paul's here saying you should actually live in a certain way that is worthy of being a representative of the gospel of Christ. So we need to understand exactly what that means. Now, that being said, this phrase, manner of life, it's difficult to sort of understand it in English. The word is politeumai in the Greek. Now, uh, first off, it could be easily translated. I don't think anybody made any mistakes here. It could be easily translated. It's just sort of like the way that you live. Let the way that you live be worthy of the gospel of Christ. But you know how uh, words can kind of have like more than one meaning, even in English, uh, they kind of have like a connotation and a denotation, like what they actually mean and what they sort of imply in saying that. And so when we hear this word, politeomai, it doesn't mean anything to us. When we hear way of life, we think like, oh, way of life. But what a, a first century person living in Philippi, specifically a Roman city, would have thought of is completely different. Um, it more specifically means the way that you live in relation to others, sort of like how much of a good team member you are, or really even to dive deeper and understand this the way that they would have. The best way that I think we can paraphrase it today is thinking of yourselves almost like a good citizen. Like how good of a representation of the place where you live are you? How good of a citizen are you? 
the first part of the word, if you remember, is politeomai. So polit comes from the word polis, uh, which doesn't refer to our current governor, but actually refers to city. So think of like Indianapolis or like the Acropolis or something like that. So sort of cities in ship, that's where all of that sort of gets tied in together. Uh, this word polis is also our root for political. Um, and so it's sort of like uh, how you interact with the government or how you interact with, I guess, like the, the sort of controlling people, the, the powers that be back then is kind of where all of this. Now, I know this feels like maybe I'm taking like a long sort of sideways job or a jog, uh, but I want you to make sure that I want to make sure that you understand that, like what he's saying here is not just like, hey, live a good life that's worthy of the gospel. He's actually using a word that would have implied so much to the people back then. And he's saying, let your citizenship, let your sort of like the way that you think of yourselves as a good citizen be worthy of the gospel. Now, the reason why that's super important, and especially for our text today, is that this book of Philippians is actually Paul writing to his most Roman context. So outside of Rome itself, out of all the cities that Paul visited, Philippi was probably the one that was most heavily influenced and controlled and owned by Rome. And if you remember, back in the day, being a Roman citizen was kind of like uh, the best thing ever. Now, this is kind of a weird thing, too, that I think we don't understand. Can you imagine, like, if uh, over the next hundred years, America just conquered, like, half of the known world? And then we said to the people that we conquered, you know, like, we've taken over, like, let's call it, like, Brazil or something like that. And we're like, okay, you Brazilians, it's nice that we control you. We've sent some of our army over there to watch you. You're not quite citizens yet, though. And then over time, people would become citizens. You could, you could buy your citizenship in the Roman, uh, in the Roman Empire. You could uh, earn it by sort of, like, marrying in. It was a very lucrative thing. If you remember much from the life of Paul, he actually used his citizenship to his advantage. Uh, people would arrest him, and he'd be like, hey, man, I'm a citizen. And they'd be like, oh, sorry. And he could get passed up to the chain. The reason why he's actually writing from Rome right now is because he was arrested and used his influence as a citizen to sort of like work his way up to the chain to say like, well, I'm going to appeal to a higher authority. I'm appealing to a higher authority. And as a citizen, you had that right. Citizens had access to so much more. They could vote. Uh, they could own land. All of these things. Being a citizen was sort of like this golden ticket living in Rome. And so it became like this huge deal. And if you could imagine yourself living in the city of Philippi, which is this city that is made up of multiple cultures, multiple people, multiple backgrounds, but only one certain set of them were known as Roman citizens. And for them, you know, it was easy to sort of like own that as like, man, this is a huge deal. I'm a big deal. I'm more important than these other people who aren't Roman citizens. And then you have this weird thing. So you've probably got some tension there. You've got some, some sort of unrest. And then you've got this weird thing. The church infiltrates the city of Philippi. The church comes to Philippi. People start believing in Jesus. People start gathering together in homes. And as such, naturally, the way that the church typically spreads, you're finding people from all different backgrounds and walks of life. And as such, there are people there naturally who are Roman citizens. And there are people there who are not Roman citizens but probably desperately want to be Roman citizens because of the advantages that it would bring to your life. And Paul then writes to all of these people and he said, let your citizenship, let the way that you live be worthy of the manner... Or let, let it be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This would have been radically different from the sort of cultural teaching that they were experiencing during the day. Just as important as citizenship was for how many rights that it uh, brought to you, it also sort of brought about a lot of responsibilities. 
In fact, to sort of like be a good citizen of Rome, to be a good Roman was sort of like the highest and greatest calling that you could have. To live that out and to actually represent Rome well, to be a good Roman citizen, was what you were called to do if you were living in one of these Roman colonies. That was sort of like succeeding. That was what it meant to be doing well in life. And here, Paul says, let your citizenship be judged by the gospel, not judged by Rome. He doesn't say, let your citizenship uh, be worthy of Rome. He says, let your citizenship be worthy of of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says later on in chapter 3, uh, 3:18 through 21, he says, For many of whom, who I have often told you about, now tell even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Jesus Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, their glory and their shame, with the mind set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. That word citizenship there is the same root as the one that is translated manner of life in our text today. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So here we see in this very first chapter and then later on in chapter 3 of Philippians, Paul is hammering home this idea. He's taking something that is culturally relevant to them, this idea of citizenship, and he's saying that your citizenship does not need to be worthy of Rome. It needs to be worthy of the gospel. Your citizenship does not be, need to be in these earthly places. It needs to be in heaven. Your citizenship, the way that you think about yourself, does not need to be bound up in all of these temporary and earthly things but rather in heaven. This has two really big implications for us today. <clears throat> because I think that the same exact truth could be said uh, to people who are living in America in the year 2022. Now, I, I really, uh, I'm loath to get sort of like too deep into the weeds with anyone's like, you know, political persuasion. I am not qualified to talk about any of this. Uh, I don't really know, right? And uh, all I really feel comfortable talking about is the Bible. But it's weird, and I think it feels like almost like an elephant in the room, at least, as I was reading this text. And maybe it has a lot to what I was experiencing, I guess, through the week to, to think about these things and what it would mean to have a be a good citizen of heaven and how that works in relationship with being a good citizen of earth or specifically of America. There's been this thing that's been on the rise uh, for the past few years, particularly, I think, uh, this thing of people call it Christian nationalism. Um, now, you may not necessarily be thinking about that. Maybe you've heard that term before. Maybe you haven't. Maybe, uh, maybe you have feelings already about that term. I had to do some sort of research to learn and understand really what it was. And it's weird that, like, early in the week, this kind of, like, popped up into my mind. You know, we're still only, like, a week and a half out from, like, uh, January 6th. And it's weird, uh, the sort of connections between Christian nationalism and the Capitol riots and, and everything like that. And the reason why I even feel sort of like justified or even like impelled to sort of to jump into this is because it's sort of this insidious thing that I think is actually growing in the life of the church, not dying. And as I was like thinking through this entire this entire week and what that looks like. I did some research. I found out there was like a there was a pastor at the January 6th riots who was like, you know, on his TikTok the whole time and videoing it. He was like, I'll probably lose my job from this, but I got to stand up. You know, I also liked it or hated it, actually, that he used the word. He was like, you know, I don't care about my reputation after this, even though that's kind of one of the qualifications for being a pastor, actually, if you check out First Timothy 2. But uh, this guy is just like, I don't care about any of that. I got to stand up, you know, that kind of stuff. 
And as I'm like going through this week and prepping for this sermon and sort of like trying to understand and wrap my mind around it, uh, I was driving in the car, had the news on, and uh, popped up the story about this church uh, that has popped up. I guess it's kind of like a mini denomination now. It's called the Patriot Church. And uh, I'm not making any of this up. This is like true. You can find it if you'd like. The Patriot Church. They played like a little soundbite from uh, the pastor from like a recent sermon. And he's up there and he said like, well, as we know, Biden stole the election. And uh, how could you uh, even think that he could have won? Did you see any Biden parades with big trucks going up and down the interstate? Clearly it was a fraud, right? And he's just doing this in the middle of the sermon. Now, uh, I don't really care about anybody's political opinion. He's, he's entitled to believe that. That's what America is all about, right? But to break it into a sermon is kind of like disgusting to me. I know you may say I'm like talking about politics right now, but hopefully I'm going somewhere. It's disgusting to me that like here we are, you know, a year and a half into this new president. And this guy is like, you know, the most important thing that I can talk to these people about is letting them know that this election was stolen. Right. Now, I understand if that's like that's what you believe. That's a huge deal for you. For sure. For sure. I get it. But man, does that kind of stuff like have a place within the church? I actually did an interview with one of the congregants of the church, and they said, hey, is this like, you know, you know, what kind of church is this? And he said, this is a Trump church. And they were like, what do you mean? They're like, this is a Trump church. We believe in Trump. He, he's our guy. He is, you know, we are huge fans of him. And I, I don't care what you think or feel about Trump. Is it not frightening that someone would say this is a Trump church, not this is a Christian church that aligns with Trump or like, hey, this is a, a church of Jesus. We like Jesus a lot. And because of that, we agree with the Republican Party or something like that. But to call something a Trump church is, is a terrifying, I, I think, label for me. Now, look, our church is made up of a lot of different people. I get that. And I try and sort of like be an open-minded person and even sort of open. Again, I, I want to stick to Scripture and say, like, that's what I care about, not all of this other junk. So you're entitled to sort of like believe or lean in some of these ways. But, man, I think we have to actually call a spade a spade every once in a while and say that I don't know that a patriot church should actually exist. I don't know that anyone should be able to label their church as falling under some political party or some other person other than Jesus. And yet, this is on the rise. There are four of these Patriot churches across the country. Uh, they've expanded. They started actually uh, sometime in the past, like, six years. And now they've expanded to four different locations. There are literally hundreds of people who are right now, in this very moment, people that would say that they believe the exact same things as you and I believe that are going to this church where the label, the designation for what this church is, is saying, hey, we are good citizens. We are Patriots. We are American people who are followers of Jesus. And you notice that label comes first. What kind of a church are you? You're a Trump church. What kind of a church are you? You're a patriot church. The most important thing, the qualifier for what type of a church are we, is that we are a church that is American, that we are good citizens. It seems like here that Paul is speaking directly against this. Paul is saying, hey, your first citizenship is not where you live. Your first citizenship is something that should be worthy of the gospel. Your first citizenship is in heaven, not in this country where you live. Now, I want you to hear me correctly. I love America. There's literally nowhere else that I would rather live 
This is where I want my citizenship. This is where I want to be. I love America from its apple pie to its jazz right down to its Ron Swansons. I mean, the entire thing. I am pro-America, all right? And I also believe that this country was largely started uh, by Christians. The majority of the, the sort of first founders of this country were Christians. A lot of them were even religious refugees coming here so that they could actually practice their religion in freedom. And as a result, uh, I believe that especially describing this country originally as a Christian nation, I don't think is too necessarily far off. But the second, I mean, it's one thing to describe your country as Christian. I think to describe your uh, Christianity as American is where it gets a little muddy, right? I think it's confusing living right now, too, uh, because it's very easy to think, since our country was started largely on Christian values and morals, that it must contain that way and that somehow God has guaranteed that it would be that way. Uh, the truth is that God doesn't need America you see, uh, Paul was actually talking to a group of people who were living under the Roman Empire. And just a few generations after this, the Roman Empire would actually switch over to being a fully Christian uh, empire, right? And they would have Jesus, or crosses on their shields, and they would march into battle. Uh, the bishops would be praying over them. They would be behind them and everything. And then still we see that the Roman Empire later would fall. It's not existent today. America wasn't around when Jesus came, and who knows if it'll be around when he comes back. I also sort of hate this identity as like God's country. Uh, it sounds very sort of like exclusive of other countries. Now, sometimes when you like hop off the plane in Montana, then somebody's like, hey, this is God's country here. I get that. You know, maybe, you know, people can say that about almost anywhere. But just this marker that like our whole country is God's country. I don't know about that. I mean, if you wanted to look like the most percentage of people uh, of a country who are Christians, then maybe sort of uh, I think we're kind of close uh, we're in like 70%, I think, that identifies as Christians. Now, this is like from a 2015 study that I'm looking at. Uh, but even there, we're not the most. In fact, and this might surprise you, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, actually 90% identifies as Christian. And that's because of this massive movement of God that has been happening in Africa over the past, like, over our lifetime. God has been moving in dramatic and very special ways throughout Africa. The Democratic Republic of Congo being one of those if you wanted to call God's country the country where uh, Christianity is growing the fastest, I will tell you it is not America. In fact, uh, the country, statistically, where God is on the move the most, where Christianity is proportionally growing the fastest, is actually the country of Iran, which is sort of a fascinating and strange thing, especially if you want to sort of like talk about Christian nationalism. Like, uh, how do you feel, now this is, might get into some stereotypes, how do you feel like the people that are attending the Patriot Church probably feel about the country of Iran? Probably not positive feelings, and yet that is where God is on the move. God's country, the former Assyrian and Babylonian empire. Isaiah would be freakishly surprised right now, given how much he said about the people that were living in the country that we now know as Iran. Now, technically, currently, at this moment, the most Christians in the world do actually live in America by population, but that number probably won't be around forever. In fact, uh, it is quite likely that during our lifetime, there will be more Christians by number. If statistics continue the way that they are, there will be more Christians living in the, in the countries of Brazil or Nigeria than there are in America. Now... <clears throat> I say all of that to say that I think 
I think that if we wrap our Christianity up too tightly in our earthly citizenship and where we are currently living, then we are at great risk of losing our Christianity entirely. Like, sure, the reason why Christianity might be on the decline, you could say, is because of, you know, like, liberals. It could be because of education. It could be because of all of these different things, the movies and TVs we watch. But I think it is equally on the decline because so many of us, so many of us who would claim to believe the same things as you and me are wrapping our identity, our identity in Christ, we're wrapping it up with something else. Wrapping it up with our identity as Americans. And that's why this term evangelical Christian, uh, which used to just simply mean sort of gospel-centered, biblically faithful Christians, is now more associated with an insurrection against our own country, an attempt to steal our country back, than it is with loving our neighbor, with serving the homeless, or even just talking about Jesus Right? Like, when was the last time that you heard on the news, hey, a bunch of evangelical Christians were telling people about Jesus? No, that is not how we get associated or painted. We are called instead to live a life worthy of our heavenly citizenship, a life worthy of the gospel that saved us, a life worthy of the Jesus that we represent. And I'm sorry for the rant. I'm sorry that we had to just sort of get so political today. But Paul says that you need to judge your life by the gospel, not by Rome. And I am saying that we ought to judge your life by the gospel and not by America. Now, I don't know what Christian nationalism exists among us, but I do know this, that our identity uh, does not only find itself resting in our national citizenship. So for all of us who sort of can sit on our high horses and be like, no, I've never identified my Christianity with my Americanness. I've never identified those two citizenships. We also need to take a hard look at what we do rest our identity in. Here, Paul is using Rome as sort of the foil. He's saying, like, I'm going to use the citizenship word that I know you think of as Rome. I'm actually going to use it in terms of the gospel. But I think the same could be said for each and every one of our identities. For the things that we find a lot of, like, purpose and meaning in, the things that we try to live our lives about. If I ask you, for instance, to tell me about yourself, where does following Jesus even fall on the list? Think about all the other things that you would name. There are probably lots of them, right? You know, I'm a husband, I'm a father, I work at this job, I do this thing, whatever that is. And then Christianity comes later. And here Paul is saying, like, those things don't matter. You need to make, measure your life up against the gospel, not about all these other identities that you may claim to have. Here at Dwell, we believe that the most important thing about me is that I am loved by God and that the most important thing about you is that you are loved by God. Not where you're from, not what you do. None of that is nearly as important to your lives and to mine as the fact that we are loved by the creator and sustainer and savior of the universe. And the good news is that because of the grace of Jesus, we are not rejected or less than, even if we have found ourselves getting our identity wrapped up into other things. All it requires is just a little bit of realignment, just a little bit of refocusing. That's why Jesus refers to himself as the good shepherd, because it is the nature of sheep to go astray. 
So also for all of us sitting on our high horses today and looking down at maybe Christian nationalists and saying, like, those guys, they're really messed up. Doesn't that just seem like the nature of the people that Jesus came to save? Doesn't it seem like the nature of you? Doesn't it seem like the nature of me that we are people who are fraught to go astray, people who are ready to wander? And the other news, and I think the way that Paul is actually telling people to live it is that you don't have to do it alone. No, to live a life worthy of the gospel is to live a life together. So, I've been going for 15 minutes, and I am through, halfway through the first sentence. I hope you guys are ready. I will jump on and continue. Uh, let's read 27 and 28 again. So remember, all of this sort of in this first very sentence is saying, hey, your citizenship should be worthy not of Rome, but actually of the gospel of Christ. So then he says, so that whether I come to see you or I am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Paul says that the only way to live this life, the only way to actually make this happen is to do it side by side. To make it standing firm in one spirit. This is what good citizens of the kingdom of God do. They do it together. Uh, there's a movement out there, and it's taken many forms. It's been gathering momentum since the early 2000s. Uh, I read this book, actually, when I was in college. It was by a guy named Dan Kimball, and he's, the title of the book was They Love Jesus But Hate the Church. And he was writing about this, like, new and growing trend, you know, and he, like, painted this picture. There's this guy. He's got, like, you know, like a freaky mohawk and stuff, and he's got, like, tats and probably has a tongue ring, you know, and he's into rock and roll. Or, no, probably art alt-rock at the time, I think, you know. And uh, basically, uh, it, this guy who represented this sort of, like, fringe culture living in Portland or wherever, uh, he was like, oh, yeah, Jesus, Jesus, he's tight, you know, but the church is whack. I tried to, like, go back in time and think of, like, the cool slang words back then. I don't know if I, like, actually located it correctly in time, uh, but it's it just things happen too fast, you know. I don't even know. Like, I don't even think we use the word fire anymore, but that doesn't quite go back to 2005. If anybody knows, you can come and let me know uh, later. Maybe it's, like, Jesus is dope, uh, but the church is square, man. Is that too far? I don't know. Anyway, that was kind of like the idea, right? This entire book was written about this group of people that are like, Jesus is cool, but we don't like the church. And it's weird, uh, Dan Kim, it's weird like living through this time because at that time, Dan Kimball was studying all these different people, especially people that were a part of this countercultural movement, kind of grungy, you know, punk scene. He's in these like uh, sort of post-Christian cities, so he's like hanging out in Portland or Seattle or something like that. And he's talking to all these people, and they're like, yeah, 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 you know, Jesus is cool. I like Jesus. I like what he says, but I do not like the church. That was just 15 years ago. That it was kind of this radical thought that, that pushed a guy to actually write a book about these people. And now, how common is that? Like back then, we were all reading this book thinking like, wow, how strange. There's these people that actually like Jesus but don't like the church. And now, like all of you can probably name somebody. One of your friends who's like, yeah, 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 I'm down with Jesus. I think he's pretty cool. But I don't know if I love the church all that much. And there's a lot of like fully legitimate reasons to actually think and believe that. That's sort of like the crazy thing in even discussing this. Now, um, some post-pandemic estimates say that the average American church has lost as much as 40% of its members through the pandemic. Man, I am just, I'm hitting the highlights today. You know, I wrote this in like different, uh, different portions through the week, and now I'm reading back through it, and I'm like, this is all right. But anyway, we're going to keep on pressing forward. 
40%. That's crazy. Meaning from the pandemic, when the pandemic started, the sort of attendance and membership numbers of, of a regular everyday church somewhere across America is now 40% less than it was post-pandemic. Now, there's a billion reasons for that, and I do not have the time or even the intellectual prowess to actually dive into all of them. Man, it's a terrifying thing. And my gut tells me that those people didn't wake up one day and they were like, you know what, I don't believe in the resurrection anymore. You know, I've been thinking about it. Not a fan. Not a fan of the resurrection anymore. No. I think a lot of these people would probably fall into this camp of like, hey, they like Jesus, they just don't like the church. And there's lots of good reasons for that. Maybe your pastor gets too political and makes you feel uncomfortable for one sermon. That could happen, right? Uh, Maybe uh, he goes off on long rants about Star Wars and you're just not into that world and that's okay, you know? Uh, Maybe, though, and probably more seriously, you don't like the hypocrites of the church. Uh, Maybe you've had an experience that was profoundly negative and harmful with someone from the church. Maybe you have read all of the sort of news and associations with the church and you don't want to be a part of that anymore. All of these seem like fully legitimate reasons. I very often get people that I'll meet, you know, and I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm a pastor. And uh, they're like, yeah, we've quit going to church. And then they say something like, it's going to shock me. They're like, the church is full of hypocrites. And I said, yes, I am aware. (laughs) They're like, hey, hey, uh, there's a lot of hateful things that the church says and does. And I said, yes, I know. I've heard it. Or they'll say, man, you would not believe what goes on behind closed doors and these closed door backroom meetings of the church. And I said, yes, I know. I have hosted them. I am in some ways culpable for all of this. It's a weird thing. That's legitimately how I feel. I mean, like, I can argue with somebody about the reasoning. I can even sort of present an alternate side. But at the same time, man, the church is messy at times. The church is ugly at times. The church is difficult to be a part of. But the truth is that many of us in this room have actually probably gone through a season like this. We've probably experienced this time. I mean, the odds are pretty decent that at some time in your lifetime, if you haven't already, maybe maybe it's coming, but, uh, you know, I'm not wishing this on anyone, but the odds are decent that at some point in your life, you may go through a season where you say, I don't know if the church is worth it anymore. I don't know if being around this group of people is what I want. Now, it speaks to just sort of like the nature of our times, too. I thought a lot about, like, what would happen if this happened back in Paul's day, you know? So Epaphroditus, I think, is carrying this letter back to Philippi. Paul is in prison, so Epaphroditus carries it back to Philippi. And I wonder if he's, like, hanging out on a boat when they're, like, pulling into to Philippi. And somebody's like, hey, man, what are you reading? And he's like, oh, it's this new letter from Paul. And that other guy's like, I love Paul. I follow him every, you know, three years when he writes a letter. It's not as easy back then to follow somebody. It took a lot of work, right? He writes one letter every three years, and you've got to figure out a way to find it. He's like, oh, man, I totally follow him. And uh, Paphroditus is like, great, are you going to Philippi? He's like, yeah, I live in Philippi. And Paphroditus is like, me too. And he's like, what church you go to? And he's like, ah, I'm between churches right now. Like, how weird would that be? That doesn't ever, like, that doesn't jive with our, like, biblical picture of the church. In fact, most uh, assumptions are that back then what would happen is there's a group of believers in Philippi, and they would all hang out together, and there was this one church, and here they were. They might have broken off into smaller groups and gone into smaller homes, but by and large, they thought of themselves as the church at Philippi. You never see a letter addressed by Paul, and he's like, the second Baptist church of Philippi. This is who gets it. We don't want to send it to that first Baptist church. They are off the rails, and don't get me started on the Methodists. No, he's saying, hey, here's the church of philippi right 
And I wonder, like, Epaphroditus is sitting there, and he's talking to this guy, and he's like, yeah, I don't really get into the church. You know, I was going to this one church, and, well, it became a little more Greco than Roman, if you know what I mean, right? And so I had to get out of there, and this other guy, I don't know. Anyway, this is a stupid thought line. But that was what I thought. Like, how strange is it? So here we are. We're a part of the same church, right? We're part of the same people. We're still followers of Jesus. And how far have we come that now we're reading this and Paul is saying, hey, I want you to be of one spirit, one mind. And we're like, that's not possible. I want you to be all together. I want you to be unified. I want you to be standing side by side. And we're like, I don't even know if I want to go to a church on Sunday morning. This word. These, this language that Paul is using here, he starts off with the citizenship language. There's a lot of subtext going on here. He starts off with the citizenship language, and then when he jumps into this side-by-side, kind of unified in one mind, it's very like militaristic language. He's even sort of like hinting at sort of like a phalanx thing, you know, which, you know, if you uh, grew up like I did, that was like the only thing interesting from world history when they talked about, you know, like the Spartans, and they put the shields all next to each other, and they're all protecting their brothers and standing side-by-side and everything like that. That's the language that Paul is using here. And instead, for a lot of us, we're like, I don't even know if I want to be around Christians anymore. I don't know if I want to be together with Christians. The church is messy and ugly. I have experienced that. I've experienced the pain. I've experienced the difficulty of that. And you know the terrible thing that I also realized this week in just a random meeting with a random person? I've probably been culpable for some of that. And especially being, this person was like thinking about being in church leadership and, and talking about sort of like the weight of all of that. And man, it is, it's something to carry. It's sort of like the more responsibility you have in leading, you know, God's church, the role that he gives you, the more... Um, Risk, I suppose, you were taking in being someone's awful church story. Somebody's probably writing a podcast about me right now. I know. It's happening. And the church is a messy, messy place. I think for Paul writing and in my own life experience, there kind of just is no other or better option for keeping me oriented and tethered to Jesus. Paul here is saying, if you're going to be good citizens worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, then you have got to do it together. You have got to do it side by side. You've got to do it standing in one spirit. We do a lot of things here at Dwell Church to hang out and to put people together. We have these groups that meet every week in people's homes uh, with the intention of building deep and meaningful and lasting and transformative relationships. And that's not just so that we can, like, you know, share casserole recipes or anything like that. That is actually because we believe that the best way that we might live out the gospel and be worthy representatives, worthy citizens of the kingdom of heaven is by doing that together. And I think when you're alone, it's so easy to get sideways. You know, and we can keep talking about like the echo chambers and the algorithms that our media is feeding us. And, and I hope that you know all of that and you've been like reading at other places that like you like something and then all of a sudden you like something else. And then Facebook starts punching out like, oh, here's something you're going to hate. And you're going to like, I hate that. And then, you know, you get sucked into this idea that like, oh, I'm getting a balanced Facebook feed. You know, they showed me something that I hate and 10 things that I love and all these other people that agree with me. Like all of that is like happening right now. And I don't care who you are and what social media is you're on or whatever. Like it is happening to you. 
like your particular feed from whatever you're getting and whatever you're ingesting is custom tailored to sort of like reinforce ideas that are happening to you. Now I'm getting conspiracy theory, sorry about this. Uh, but all of that is happening to you and it is affecting your brain in ways that we don't like to admit. And it's affecting mine too. And the reason why the church is an important antidote to that, and particularly the church together is an important antidote to that, is because it is a lot like a tetherball. Uh, have you ever played this game, right? They got the big pole out there. I think it's outlawed now, right? Like, it's one of those games that's kind of like dangerous. Because you could, uh, it, was a it was a pole, big aluminum pole, sort of like Festivus. And you'd have this, like, rope hanging off of it. And then you'd have this ball, kind of heavier and thicker than a dodgeball, I guess, like spinning around. And, man, you could get that thing moving. And then if you, like, caught one in the face, you'd, like, total, you know, backflip around kind of stuff, right? So this is tetherball. I think that in some ways the church is a lot like that. And not just because things move fast and people get hit in the face. But more so because, if you think about it, uh, tetherball is kind of this, this weird thing where two people are playing, they're trying to hit the ball, and they're both like working in opposite directions and even opposition to each other. Sort of like the way that we actually come in and bring in ideas and, you know, like we live our lives and we sort of like go out into the world. And I think about this a lot at like small group, like on, on Monday nights, my group meets. And I think like, you know, I've just come from whatever craziness has just happened, good, bad, and the ugly. I can't imagine like the thoughts that I sort of bring into those moments. I guess I can't imagine them. They're my thoughts. But anyway, I bring in these thoughts and those moments from the world that I've been living in. And then we gather together, and these thoughts get sort of like bounced around, but not just bounced around haphazardly, bounced around with sort of this one pole in the middle holding it all together, and that being Jesus. I mean, that's the goal of this entire thing, right? That we would get together and actually center around Jesus. And so then when we bring in our chaotic worlds and thoughts and minds and the way that we've been shaped, then all of a sudden we're not just like balancing against someone else's opinion, but we're actually balancing against and around Jesus. That all of the movement that happens, all of the ways that our like, you know, thoughts and presuppositions get confronted by just having a close relationship with someone is not just done in the sense of like we're having a good conversation. It's actually done around Jesus with the hope then that as the ball continues to move that we're actually like drawing in closer and closer and closer to that center pole to that center idea of Jesus but a lot of times I think in particularly in the American church we've done a few things with the ball sometimes we just take the ball and go home and we play against our garage door right that's kind of a sad way to live but at least nobody's disagreeing with us we know who threw the ball you know Sometimes it turns into do or volleyball where you're kind of just hitting it back and forth and you're like, you know, here's some good ideas. Oh, here's a bad idea. Here's a good idea, bad idea, you know, that kind of thing. And very often people have taken our own Christianity and then turned it into a game of dodgeball. This is a weapon that we use against our enemies. We've taken it off of the chain. Who cares about the pole anymore? Now we are just out there trying to pummel one another. The church is meant to be this sort of central figure in our lives that keeps us tethered to who Jesus is. The gathering together with other believers is not just meant to put, you know, me with someone else who's different than me and just be able to see that or, or me with someone else and be able to like experience community. But the church was actually meant to be this place where believers can gather around something bigger than themselves, namely Jesus, so that they, through the gathering together of themselves and gathering around Jesus, might actually grow closer to being more like Jesus. 
that in being side by side and being of one spirit and being against our opponents and our enemies outside, we might actually grow closer to the one that we are trying to live worthy of. You need a group of people who can love you regardless of what you think. You need a group of people who can bounce ideas off of you, who can give you hard truths, who can cause you to think. And most of all, you need a group of people who can gather together and say, hey, we all need Jesus. We need his grace. We need his forgiveness. And we need his truth in our lives. I don't think true Christianity, the way that Jesus envisioned it, actually exists without that. Verse 29, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Here he is saying that you should suffer together because suffering will continue. He's saying, I hear that you have has been granted to you. That you get to suffer for his sake. It's been given to you. The gift of God has been given to you that you might suffer for his sake. It's a, it's a, it's a gift. It's something that something, someone has granted to you. Good for you, Paul says. You are getting to suffer just in the same way that I am getting to suffer. And it's important to recognize here this is plural too. This is not just you are suffering alone, but you are suffering together. He's saying that it's not possible to avoid this suffering. In fact, it's a good thing that you are experiencing it because now you are suffering together. One commentator wrote that suffering is the result of being obedient to a world or to God in a world that cannot abide such obedient ones. You read that again. Suffering is the result of being obedient to God in a world that cannot abide such obedient ones. And Paul here is saying that you are suffering for the gospel. You're suffering because you are living this life, this manner of life that is worthy of the gospel. You are good gospel citizens, and as a result, you're suffering, but you are not doing it alone. Let's move on. Last part. We read chapter 2 earlier out of the ESV, but I really like how the message translation puts it. It says, if you've gotten anything at all out of following Christ, if his love has made any difference in your life, if being in a community of the Spirit means anything to you, if you have a heart, if you care, then do me a favor. Agree with each other. Love each other. Be deep-spirited friends. Don't push your way to the front. Don't sweet-talk your way to the top. Put yourself aside. Help others get ahead. Don't be obsessed with getting your own advantage. Forget yourselves long enough to lend a helping hand. Can you imagine a community like this? A community of deep-spirited friends. I love that. Is there not something deep in your heart that longs for that? Like every time you walk in a store that sells hats and it says community on the wall, you're like, I don't know, I just came here to buy a hat. Isn't there something that's like uh, deep inside of you that's like, actually, I do really want this community. That community that you, you know, kind of, you get a little glimpse of, you're like, you know, at yoga or something like that, and then you get to hang out afterwards and you're like, yeah, I mean, we're centered around this one idea, we like this one thing, we're kind of shared hobbyist but a deep-spirited friends i don't think that exists there i 
not a community of people who are friends because they all love the same ever-changing group of people who are identified by a certain set of colors and geolocation that will go out and move a ball around a small designated area for a couple of hours a week. That's sports, by the way. Yeah. You say you love a team. What are, it's different people every, like, three years. That doesn't make any sense. Do you just love a color of a shirt? That you just love a city? I don't really know, you know, but we get behind it anyway. And then it's weird that we feel like we have friends. I'm like, oh, yeah. I was in uh, the Levi's store, actually. We had to, like, stop by the mall the other day, and uh, I was wearing, like, a Chelsea jacket. I like Chelsea, the soccer team. And uh, this guy comes up to me, and he's, like, working there at the Levi's store. He's like, oh, yeah, you like Chelsea? Me too, which is kind of rare because we're Americans. You know, it's not like I was wearing a Broncos jersey or anything like that. So... Uh, he was like, yeah, yeah, what do you think of this trade move? And I was like, well, it wasn't smart. If I was there, I would have done something different. We did that kind of, you know, we know better than paid professionals kind of talk for a little while, right? Like, we're two idiots in a Levi's store 2,000 miles away. I'm like, yeah, Lukaku's a chump. <laughs> uh, anyway, then you know what happened? We became best friends. And we went and grabbed lattes orange mocha frappuccinos, and we danced and frolicked and sang for the rest of the... No! I walked out. <laughs> I left. I went out of that Levi's store, and I said, have a good day. Go Blues. And we, I just, I was gone. And I'll never see him again, and that's fine. Now, we could have been friends. That's something, but man, it's not really all that much, is it? And I think what our hearts are longing for is actually this deep-spirited friendship. Something more something that means something, something that gives us real friends. Denver, for all of its virtues, uh, again, you know, I love it that I'm like trashing everywhere that I live. For all of its virtues, Denver is the best place to live, and it's where I want to live and the only place I want to live. Man, Denver does a number on your friendships. It warps our mind to think that things that are friends are not friends. Man, that, that guy that you see once every three months, that's not a deep-spirited friendship. That guy where you both just, uh, you know, you get in the conversation about sports and you're just agreeing with each other back and forth kind of vehemently. You ever like heatedly agree? Yeah, and they got no defense. I know, man. Like that kind of thing. Like that is not a deep-spirited friendship. Yet we consciously delude ourselves. And part of it's just to help stave off loneliness. And please hear me. I, I know I've been harsh today and I hate it. And I, yeah. I don't want to take this sort of away from anyone or also denigrate anyone else's ideas of relationships and friendships. But man, are you not longing for more? Is there not something else? Like, do you not even feel when you have little glimpses of like a decent friendship, do you not like hunger for a deep spirited, for something meaningful, for something more out of a friendship? I think that's what Paul is describing here. And he says, if you've gotten anything out of following, just God, or following Christ, if love has made any difference in your life, if being in a community of the Spirit means anything, if you have a heart, if you care, then do me a favor. Agree with each other, love each other. Be deep-spirited friends. He's saying that actually your response to the gospel for what has been done in your life is to actually go out and seek these friendships. And I love this like message paraphrase. He goes, out and says, do me a favor. And it feels like that's what Paul's saying here. If all of these things that I know have happened and you have actually happened to you, go out and do this. Be a community. Find these deep and meaningful friendships. 
this deep-spirited friendship is what I want from a group of people I can be myself around, a group of people that I can ask forgiveness from, a group of people that I can give forgiveness to, a group of people that will show up when I need them, a group of people that I can show up for, that want to be closer to Jesus and want me to do the same. This is a life-transforming relationship. This is not something that just momentarily pauses our loneliness. This is not something that just makes us feel a little bit better about our lives. But this is something that changes our lives forever and also changes the world. I promise this is like the last story. There's this tender moment in John chapter 15 when Jesus is with his disciples. He's about to go to the cross. He knows it. He knows what is coming. This is kind of in this Last Supper moment. And uh, at least in John's gospel, we get this really beautiful and intimate picture of the final things that he has to say to his disciples. So he lets them know. He says, hey, the Holy Spirit's coming. You should know that's on the way. Uh, He lets them know a few other things. And then he goes into this long, uh, I think if you're reading along, it feels like almost like a random sideways jog. He looks out at these 12 people that he spent three years with. And he looks out and he says, no longer do I call you servants, but I call you my friends. Because I have given you everything that the Father has given to me. That's fascinating. He doesn't hit them with like this strategic vision. He's like, all right, you go to Athens, you go to Philippi, you go to Rome, you guys get out of here. Uh, Or he doesn't hit them with like, here's a good strategy, okay, so make sure that you do this and this and X, Y, and Z. No, in these final moments, he lets these 12 random, seemingly normal guys, lets them know that they are his friends. And then he says to them, I say all of these things so that you might love one another. In effect, saying, so that you might be friends in the way that I have been a friend to you. And then he sends these 12 friends out. They get scattered throughout the known world, some of them working together, some of them building new friends and seeing new communities of faith. One of these people make friends with, or, you know, I guess all 12, 11 of them at the time ended up making friends with a guy named Paul who was persecuting the church, and yet they welcome them in, welcome him into this relationship with them. Paul goes out and makes new friends, even in the city of Philippi, connecting with people over the good news of Jesus Christ, and then this group of friends grows to become the church at Philippi. Then Paul writes this letter of Philippians to them, saying, hey, I am with new friends, even though I am in prison over here in Rome, but they are connected with and praying for and benefiting from your kindness, Church at Philippi. And that group of friends continues to grow. And then through history, through thousands of years and through thousands of miles around the entire planet, through a web of friend to friend relationships, you You were given to understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you are a follower of Jesus today, I am submitting to you that that is due, not because, you know, Christianity had this super strong strategic vision, not because, you know, like we were smarter than everyone else. No, that is due to a chain of relationships that dates back to Jesus Christ sitting in a small upper room with 12 random guys and looking at them and telling them, you are my friends, and I am telling you this so that you will love one another and I am also telling you this so that the world will know you by how you love one another. That's what he actually says to them. He says, people will know that you are followers of me because you love one another. 
man, how far have we gotten? How far have we come? Christianity is divided. I don't even know if we believe in being together as a part of the church anymore. Trying desperately to do it on our own. At the heart of everything that we do, and maybe even the bedrock foundation of the church, is relationships. It all started when Jesus came down from heaven, chose to befriend sinners, chose to befriend regular, worthless people, just like you and me, chose to spend his life with them, chose to give his life for them. He himself says, no greater love can a man have than this to lay down his life for his friends. This is the church that I think that we're called to be. And here's what I want you to do, because I know I've like hit you with a lot of just sort of like, you know, stuff that can feel kind of guilt inducing. And I want you to just sort of remove that. If I have said anything that I should not have said, then. God, please or please forgive me, but also I want to apologize to all of you. Take it out. Kick it out. I want you to now just sort of like envision this type of church that you want to be. I want you to envision the type of friend that you want to be, the type of friend that you want to have. And I am telling you that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you are called and you are empowered to be that friend. And called to be that friend to someone else. And this is not just something that's fun for us. This is not just something that makes our lives a little bit richer. This is not something that becomes a hallmark card. This is actually the pathway that the gospel travels throughout time and space. This is the path that the gospel has taken to come to you. And it is the path that the gospel will take to come to generations of the church after us until Jesus comes again. That your friendships can actually be a supernatural thing. Your deep-spirited friendships can be a life and world-changing thing. So I'm calling on you to be the type of friend that you want to have. Would you guys pray with me? God, we thank you and we love you. God, that you have called us, that you have saved us. God, you have rescued us. God, we ask now that you would rescue us from false ideas from the world of how we ought to worship you, God. I pray now that you would rescue us from thinking that our citizenship is first and foremost as Americans, God, and actually show us that our true citizenship lies in heaven. God, forgive us of where we've gotten those two mixed up. God, forgive us of any other citizenship that we have put above you, God. May our primary and central May our only identity be found in people who are lo- found in being people who are loved by you, God. That is what I want for myself. God, that I am not a pastor first. I am not a husband first. I am not a father first. God, that I am a child beloved by you. God, let that be true of me, God. God, and let every friendship that I might have that you put in my place flow out of that. Everything that I say and do and even everything that I want out of these relationships comes straight from you, not from myself.
we ask and humbly pray right now that you, through your power of your Holy Spirit, would show us how to be these friends. Friends like you were with the disciples, God. The friends like they made in the church of Philippi, God. That through unity, through love of one another, and through uh, unifying around you, God, that we might be the church that you want us to be. God, we love you and we thank you for loving us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope it brought you closer to Jesus and more in touch with the world around you. Being a Christian in today's culture can be hard. Fortunately, he gives us the gift of community through his church. So we would love to invite you to join us for one of our Sunday morning gatherings or for one of our weekly small groups. All the details you need can be found on our website, dwelldenver.org.